All right, we are in uh, week three of a series we're doing called Neighboring, and it's a series where, as a church, we're looking at the two greatest commandments in the Bible. First command is to love God with everything you have, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the second command that we're really diving into, and we've been looking specifically at how this command to love your neighbor also means to love your next door neighbor. Imagine that. And uh, it's a command to love the person that lives across the street from you, to love the person that lives beside you in your apartment, to love the person that lives down the the street in your uh, house out there in the county, wherever it is that you live. God is calling us to love our our next door neighbors too. And last week we started into this important text in the Bible where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And we are having some technical issues with our, our screens this morning, so... If you want to grab a Bible and follow along, that's totally cool. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we're going to be hanging out in this morning. The Bible says this. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So this, this lawyer, this guy who's an expert in the law, religious guy, he comes up to Jesus and he wants to put Jesus to the test. So he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit an eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And basically, what he wanted to know was what kind of person qualifies to be loved by, by me? And like we talked about last week, this guy, was what he was doing here is he was looking for a loophole in God's command. And we do the same thing all the time with this command to love our neighbors. I love what this guy named uh, Jay Pathak says about this, this particular scripture here, here. He says, if we don't take Jesus' command to love our neighbor literally, then we turn the great commandment into nothing more than a metaphor. We have a metaphoric love for our metaphoric neighbors and our communities are changed, but only metaphorically, of course. In other words, nothing changes. And what we, we tend to do with this command is we make it about everybody. We find the loophole. And with this guy in Jesus' story, the problem was that, wasn't that he didn't know who his neighbors were. The problem was actually probably more along the, along the lines that he knew who they were, but he just didn't really have a whole lot of love for his neighbors. And so he was kind of trying to find a way out of this and justify the lack of love in his life. Basically, what he's asking when he says, who is my neighbor, is who, who qualifies to be on the receiving end of, of my love? It's the wrong question to be asking, especially for the follower of Jesus, because none of us deserves to be on the receiving end of Christ's love. None of us qualifies. The Bible talks about how we are enemies of God. We are far away from God, but God, none of that mattered. He, he, his love is so great. He lavished his mercy and his grace on us. He pursued us. None of us qualified for his love, but he loved us anyways, even given his life on the cross. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, really what you've done is given up the right to ask the question, who deserves, who qualifies to be, to be loved by me? And the answer to that question for the follower of Jesus is everybody qualifies. In fact, Jesus even said, your enemies qualify. He put it like this in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. The wrong question is, who is my neighbor or who deserves my love? The better question for this guy in Jesus' story and the better question for us to be asking is, what must I do to be a loving person? What must I do to be a loving neighbor? And you see how it flips the whole thing around from who deserves to be loved to how do I need to change to be a more loving person? And as we are doing this series on neighboring, I'm excited to see how the fabric of our city, and I really believe this, the fabric of our city can change as we begin to leave this building asking that question, how can I be a loving neighbor to the people that live right around me in my neighborhood? So Jesus, though, he goes on to answer this man's question, who is my neighbor, by telling a short story, and it's a story that's become known as the Good Samaritan, arguably one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells during his time on earth. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus is a masterful storyteller like all good stories, stories or storytellers do. He starts off with some conflict. This guy is leaving this town. He's going on a little trip. As he's going down this road, all of a sudden, he's attacked by robbers. They take everything that he has. They leave him on the side of the road, half dead. There's this conflict, this drama, this tragedy, and the start of this story. If this is a movie scene, you could probably picture the vultures and the buzzards are kind of starting to circle around this guy. The wind is blowing tumbleweed down this forsaken road as this guy lies there, half dead, kind of like no hope in his dire situation. Well, the story continues. Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. This is good. Jesus' listeners would have kind of perked up a little bit at this point because here's this priest, this religious guy. I mean, kind of like a pastor. He's supposed to be one of these guys that's kind of ready at a drop of a hat to drop everything that he's doing and just shower helpless people on the side of the road with love and compassion. It looks like it's going to be a good story after all. Awesome. God works for good for those who love him. The guy's about to be rescued. Well, you know the story. That's not quite how it goes. The story continues, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, this is another religious guy, Jesus loved to pick on the religious guys. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. As I was reading through this story, in light of this series that we're doing on being a loving neighbor, there's two words in here that kind of jumped out at me. That's the words, passed by. Because when you think about the people that you pass by in life, probably some of the people that you pass by more than just about anybody else are your neighbors. You go for a walk around the neighborhood, who are you passing by? You're passing by your neighbors. When you spend time in your front yard, in a sense, you're passing by your neighbors again. Or maybe it happens when you you get off work, you drive home, and you, you pull into the driveway, you notice that your neighbor's pulling at the exact same time. And you're like, oh, I don't want to have an awkward conversation with my neighbor that I don't really know. And they're not going to want to have an awkward conversation with me. And so I'll just pull out my phone, act like I've got an important conversation to, to, to have, wave at my neighbor. They get inside, and then I go inside the house as well. Hopefully I'm not the only person in the room that's done that, okay? No? Okay. You're like, man, Rich, you're awful. Awful neighbor. But we pass by our neighbors a lot, all of us. And like this priest and Levi in Jesus' story, rarely 
do we actually take the time to stop? And there's a lot of reasons for this, but I'm guessing nine times out of ten, the reason that we don't engage our neighbors is because of time. And I, don't, I live with the same tension that everybody else in this room lives in, where you're going, I don't, I don't have time. And, and I, how do I love my neighbors and be a person that's engaged with my neighbors uh, when I don't have the time? I barely have time for the relationships that I have, let alone having seven or eight new relationships with the people that live in my neighborhood. I just don't have the time. And, and can we just be honest for a second? We live at a crazy, crazy breakneck speed in our culture. We live so, so fast. Uh, I promise you this has nothing to do with the message this morning, but it's probably, God's trying to say something to us this morning about faith. Okay. Uh, but we, we live at this breakneck speed. And in Western culture in particular, we are all about production. We're all about achievement. We're all about go, 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 results, results, results. Just do whatever you can. Fly a thousand miles an hour. We don't have time for relationships. And you would think that we would, because in our day and age, we have more time-saving devices than we have in all of history. We have microwaves to make cooking faster. We have a click list nowadays to make shopping faster. Any click listers here in the room today? Yeah, we got a few of those. You're like, what's click lists? You got to check it out. It's awesome. If you have a smartphone, if you have a smartphone, you have your own personal assistant to, to plan your meetings, to make sure you're checking off your to-do list. Right there on your phone. We have all these things to save time, but what are we doing? We are just going crazier and crazier. It's interesting. There was this, this uh, back in the 30s, this social scientist, his name was John Keenis. He predicted this back in the 30s. He said, when we reach the point when the world produces all the goods that it needs in two days, as it inevitably will, we must turn our attention to the great problem of what to do with our leisure. And the thinking back in the 30s was that we were becoming so much more efficient with machines and just working more efficiently that there would come a point in time where we were getting all the work done so fast that we would just have all this free time on our hands. And we would just have everybody in the world just wondering what to do with all of our free time. This thinking actually persisted right up into the 1960s. Well, guess what? Nobody is having that conversation anymore because we just have no margin we're just going so crazy we're running like crazy people and we do that i think mainly because we believe a few myths and these myths that we believe they just keep us in this perpetual cycle of crazy 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 go 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 one of the myths that we believe is that someday things are going to settle down <laughs> it's funny someday if i can just get through this week then things will settle down. If I can just get through the Christmas season, then things are going to settle down. If I can just get out of this crazy stage in life when all my kids are in diapers and running around and screaming and going crazy, then things are going to settle down. If you're a student, uh, when I graduate, then things are going to settle down. That is funny. <laughs> it's really funny. Or, or you think, okay, when I retire, when I get to that, when I'm 65, then things are going to settle down. It, it's a myth. Another myth that we believe is that more will be enough. 
If I can just get that, if I just work really hard and get, get that perfect house, then, then I'll have enough. Or if I can just work really hard and build up the goose egg just a little bit more, then I'll have, I'll have enough. And it just keeps us going, 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 going. Another myth we believe is everybody lives like this. Like, I look around, Western culture, this is just how we live. We just go, 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 go. Busyness is just how we do things. But guess what? In reality, not everybody lives like that. In fact, uh, there's a better way, and Jesus talked about the better way, uh, and it's interesting that, so if you, if you read through your Bible and you read Luke 10, this, this story about the Good Samaritan and loving God and loving your neighbors, if you read through your Bible and just keep going, right after that story where people are probably having the same thoughts that we're thinking, going, I don't have time for that, Jesus, right after that, there's a story about this really busy, busy lady and another lady who wasn't quite so busy. And it's this story where uh, Jesus, he, he shows up at the home of his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And while Jesus is there, Martha is scurrying around like crazy. She's fussing about all the details, and she's just trying to get everything perfect because she has Jesus in her home as her guest. Well, all this is happening. Mary, Martha's sister, is in the front room with Jesus, and she's just sitting there lapping up everything that Jesus has to say, and she's just hanging out with Jesus. Meanwhile, Martha's going crazy. Well, Martha eventually has enough. She comes storming into the front room, and listen to what she says. She gives Jesus a bit of a piece of her mind. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And then there's an exclamation point right there. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. I wonder how many he would say that to you in the room today. You're upset about so many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will, it will not be taken away from her. And I love how he doesn't come in here and say, you know what, what, what Mary's doing is, or what Martha's doing is just too much. She's going too crazy. She needs to, Martha, you need to stop that. You need to come in. He says, you know what? It's all good what you're doing. I love that you're, you're getting this great meal and everything ready for me, but there's a better way than the way that you're currently living your life. And what happens when we get in a hurry, like what just happened in this story, is we end up missing the bigger point. So Martha misses the point that Jesus is there in the house, the king of kings, the one who gave her breath and life is there in the house. And when we start getting in this crazy hurry, and we just get going, 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 we miss the bigger point. You see this happen in almost every single wedding that has ever happened in all of history. You have the bride and the groom and the family, they're just going crazy. They have all these details that they've got to get nailed down. They're just like going a thousand miles an hour. They get to the wedding and they're just so caught up in everything that's happening, making sure that everything's going the way it's supposed to go so that you can have the perfect wedding. Well, then what happens Weeks or months after the wedding, when you kind of talk about how it went, what's the line that they all say? We don't remember anything. It was all just a blur. Because you miss the bigger point because you were hurrying. Parents do this with their kids all the time. So busy hurrying their kids from this thing to the next thing, caught up in the crazy, craziness of life, and you miss the, the point. You've been entrusted with some incredible little gifts to do life with and to love and care and nurture. 
And so when we start looking at loving our neighbors, we're like, sorry, no time. I have no margin in my life for another relationship. You know, you know how it happens with, with neighbors? I find that in my neighborhood with my neighbors, margin is actually a pretty big deal. Because relationships with neighbors actually don't form in the schedules. They tend to happen in the margins. So yesterday, I had a bit of a schedule to keep. A part of what was in my schedule was take down the Christmas lights. And uh, yeah, it's a little late, I know. But if I'm out there taking down the Christmas lights, my neighbor comes out, I can either go, okay, I'm gonna, I've got a schedule to keep. I'm just going to wave from across the street. Or I can go, you know what, I've got, it's, I've got some margin in my schedule. I've got a, a day to do some things. I'm, I don't have to be here or there, wherever, whatever's next. I'm going to engage. Relationships with your neighbors, they, they happen in the margins. And, you know, can I just be super blunt this morning? Jesus never said, love God with everything you have if you have time. He never came along and said, Love your neighbor as yourself if you have the time. He never said, take up your cross and follow me if you have the time. He just comes along and says, here's, here's the command. And by the way, they're, they're, they're going to bring you life. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then what he does, is he leaves it up to us to figure out how we're going to follow and obey. And, and can I just say for most of us, the wise way to make these commands, the, the way we're going to live our lives is not by looking at our plate that is packed full of all kinds of stuff and going, okay, I'll just add this onto the plate. The wise way for most of us in the, the room is going to be to go, okay, my plate's pretty full, but if this is what Jesus is asking me to do, what can I take off the plate? We all have the, the start doing list, the task list. I think we need to develop the stop doing list. Here's the things I need to stop doing so I can start doing whatever it is that Jesus is asking us to do. You know, we talk a lot around here about being a church that's about relational discipleship, where we're growing in our faith and we're becoming more like Jesus because we've got relationships in our, li- our lives. And um, there's, that, there's that kind of church. And then there's a church that's all about just running like crazy and just we're all about trying to get people to programs and in services and all that just crazy, crazy stuff to make that happen. And there's a difference between the church that's about relationship and the church that's just about all the stuff. There's a big difference. You know, one values programs, the other values relationships. And one, the relationships, there, there tends to be relationships there, and they're friendly and polite. You know, there's a, a handshake, there's a, a, a conversation about the Seahawks, there's a, hey, how you doing? There's there's, there's polite, friendly conversation. But in this one, you have deep, life-giving relationships. And this one over here, uh, you, you have uh, people tend to feel disconnected, only valued for what they can contribute to the program, whatever might be happening in the church. And this one, people are valued for who they, they are. And if I was to ask you today, which one of these two, two churches do you want to be, you would all say the second kind. I want to be a part of the church that loves and cares not only for one another that are part of the church, but that loves and cares for those outside the church. It loves and cares for our neighbors. I want to be a part of that church. But here's the thing. 
this second kind of church, it doesn't just magically happen because you go, I want to be a part of that kind of a church. It doesn't. The only way it happens is if you decide, I'm going to begin to invest time and energy into relationships. Whether the relationships are with those in this room or the relationships are with those that live on your block. The biggest obstacle to becoming this kind of church, a loving, caring body, is the insane busyness of Western culture, period. That's the biggest obstacle. Your, 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 your sixth grader doesn't need to be studying for their SAT just quite yet. You know what I'm saying? Your kids don't need to be experts in four to five different sports. You don't need to be going a thousand miles an hour so that you can live in a mansion that you can't really afford. You, you don't need to be doing all that. There's a better way to live. Author Paul Tripp, he says a key question that families need to be constantly asking themselves is what set of values is driving your schedule? Isn't that a great question to ask? Stop for a minute and just ask yourself, what is driving our schedule? For some, the value that drives our schedules is this elusive American dream. You think if you just have, you work your butt off, that you'll be able to keep or achieve that, that ideal home, that ideal car, that ideal life situation. For others, the value that drives their, their schedule is money. Others, it's career. Others, it's their kids' education. What is it for you? What is it that drives your schedule? And, and don't get me wrong this morning. You can do all that stuff. You can have a schedule that's all about, about this. God's still going to love you. He's not going to turn his back on you. He's still, he's still going to love you. But I just want to be clear this morning on, on something. If you settle for the whirlwind, the craziness of life, making your life, your values, your schedule, all about that stuff, you are settling for little kingdom, not big kingdom. You're settling for little kingdom, not big kingdom. You're settling for that which is temporary, not that which is eternal. As we've been look, looking and learning, at, or learning from, from Luke 10, that's not truly living. Jesus says, love God and love people then you will live. And I think all of us, all of us, would do well to step back and look at our schedules, take a good look at them and ask ourselves, how much time and energy in my schedule is invested in loving Jesus and loving people? And neighboring at the end of the day is only going to happen if we develop a, a different kind of lifestyle than the crazy lifestyle that most people in Western culture have. We have to create margin. And I've been honestly learning this really well from my actual neighbors. I have a guy that lives across the street. And uh, within probably one or two weeks of moving into our neighborhood, he knew way more people in our neighborhood than it took me a whole year to get to know. So I'm not coming at this, just put it all out there. I'm not coming at this as the expert. But this, this guy, he, the, the reason is because he keeps his garage door open almost all the time. Uh, he'll be out there working on his, if he's got something to work on a project, he's not, he's not closed off inside of his garage. The garage door is open, and then he's going back and forth, back and forth. He sees somebody walking down the street. He says, hi. If they, if they look like they want to engage in conversation, he stops what he's doing. He goes down there. He leans on his truck. I mean, I see that all the time. He's leaning on his truck, just chatting with the neighbors as they're, they're doing whatever it is that they're doing. He's always engaging, and his whole posture says, I'm available. I have some other neighbors that live about four houses down, and 
they have, they have like the regular door and then they have the screen door, the, the uh, clear screen door, glass screen door. Well, almost all year round, they actually keep the wooden door open and it's the glass screen door. So you can actually, I just got to step out front and look down, at, oh, they're home. And what's the, what, are, what are they sending with that, that posture? The message that you're getting is, hey, we are available. In fact, they see people, they're the same thing. They see people walking by, and they're like, they, they go out, they say hi. I live in an awesome neighborhood, by the way. Let's put that out there. But they're, they're just, they're available. The, the blinds aren't shut. They're not like just hurrying, scurrying all the time. Their whole posture says that they're, they're available. And this, this kind of stuff doesn't happen unless you reprioritize, reprioritize your life around what's important. You have to do that. Dallas Willard um, my small group right now is going through this book called Soul Keeping, and I'd encourage you to grab a hold of this book. It's so, so good. But in this, this book, this, this, uh, there's this quote from this guy named Dallas Willard, and uh, he says this. He says, hurry is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life. We have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. The spiritual life is not just you and Jesus. The spiritual life, as we're reading from Luke 10, is also you and people. And if, if your life is characterized by hurry, you will have a dried up spiritual life. Learn to live at a pace where you're interruptible, where you're not so busy and hurried, and, and you'll begin to live a life where you can love your neighbors. So going back to Jesus' story, yeah, these two religious guys, the priest and the Levite, they had, they had some kind of reason for not stopping by in, in helping this guy, the Bible doesn't say what those reasons are, but uh, maybe they were just in a hurry. Could have been that they didn't want to get their, their clerical robes dirty and messy. Maybe they were afraid because they saw the guy who had been beat up, and maybe they're thinking that, okay, there's bandits around here, so we just got to keep on moving. We don't know what the reason is, but these guys just blow right past them. They keep walking. But for the one who wants to follow Jesus and loving their neighbors, uh, Jesus gives us an example of what, what that looks like. And this is how he concludes the story. He goes on to say, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Key phrase. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this religious guy, this expert in the law, says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A few things that it takes if you're going to be a loving neighbor. First thing is it takes compassion. It takes compassion. This Samaritan, he sees this man on the side of the road. He sees that he's hurting. He sees that he's broken. And something happens inside of his heart. He feels compassion. But if you just feel something, that's actually not compassion. That's empathy. Compassion is to feel something and then to spring into action and do something. And when it comes to having compassion for your neighbors, it's recognizing that all of your neighbors are part of the same broken world that you're a part of. And going, I'm going to have compassion. You know, is this crazy story out of Paris, Paris California is, is coming out with these 13 kids. They've just been horrifically 
mean, the stuff that's going on there, is just, you can't even wrap your mind around it. But the question that, that I hear being asked over and over again is, where, where, where were the neighbors? Like, how could nobody see something, or how could nobody uh, notice that something was off with 13 kids in what looks like a decent neighborhood? Kind of, nobody does anything. And I think what happens is just everybody's in a hurry. We're just going, 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 going. Now, obviously, that's an extreme case of brokenness, but all of us have, have, have neighbors who, who are suffering through stuff, neighbors who have the same need for caring community that you have, neighbors uh, that, that, that have a story, and, and neighboring is about having enough compassion to just stop and engage and show that you care, show that you, that, that, that you have compassion. You're going to be a friend. You're going to show um, that just the light of Jesus, whatever that looks like in your neighborhood. And if you find yourself lacking compassion, start by trying to see people how Jesus saw them. Listen to this verse in Matthew chapter 9, 36. It says, when he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out. I'm pretty sure we've got some neighbors who are weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Everyone has brokenness. Everyone has a battle that they're fighting. Those neighbors that you see across the street that you go, man, they have got it all together. Nobody has it all together. Everybody has a battle they're fighting. And when we, when we begin to have compassion, we're on the road to be, becoming loving neighbors. Something else that will that'll take to be loving neighbors is a willingness to make yourself available. And it's going, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, like we talked about, I'm going to clear off some things off the plate so that I can just have some more margin in my life. Whatever it takes, I'm going to create that margin so that I can be available. Um, we see this with the Samaritan guy. You know, maybe one of the reasons the other guys just blew right on past is because they saw it. it was going to take a lot of time. It was going to take a lot of work, and they're looking at their schedules, their time. They didn't have watches back then, but they, they, were, they just were thinking, okay, I don't have time right now. Somebody's probably going to eventually come down the road who can, can help out, so I'm just going to keep on going. Has anybody ever done that with a flat tire or broken down vehicle? Someone else eventually is going to come along. I don't have time. I'm just going to keep going. Well, the, the good Samaritan, he had some margin, so he was able to, to stop, and he was able to engage and make himself available. And then lastly, last thing, if you're going to be a loving neighbor, it's going to take simple obedience. Simple obedience. And, and you know, this is what it really boils down to. If, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're going, yeah, I've made him my king. I've made him my Lord. He's my Savior. I'm following him. What it really boils down to is, okay, we say we love him, now are we going to obey him? Jesus, at the end of this story, he, he, this expert in the law, he has these questions, and Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan. What does he say at the very end? He says, now you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. And he's saying the same thing to us this morning. He's saying, you go and do likewise. He's not saying, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, you're, you're, you're just, things are too crazy, and, and, and I just have so much going on, it, this doesn't apply to you, it's for everybody else. He, no, he's saying, you go and you do likewise. He's asking, do you trust me enough to just simply say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Lord, I'm like, I'm so introverted, I don't know how, I don't even know how to talk to people. He's not out. He's just saying, are you going to trust me? 
with all those questions and doubts, whatever they might be, are you just going to trust me and say, yes, Jesus, I will love my neighbors as I love myself? He doesn't promise it's going to be easy. He doesn't promise that you're going to be loved in return. I mean, we've all had neighbors who have not loved in return. He doesn't promise that that's going to happen. He just asks us to go and do likewise, to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and this is the path. He does promise this is the path that leads to life. And maybe, maybe he'll do something awesome in your neighbors, but, or maybe he just wants to do something incredible in your life. I don't know what he wants to do through that. But when we step out and, and do what God's asking us to do, one thing you can be sure of is that he will work every single time. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we this morning want to come before you and humbly just, God, ask that, Lord, you would, you would show us, God, what it means and what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, in reality, God, you, you have been showing us. God, it takes compassion God, if we're honest, brutally honest, God, oftentimes we're just so busy just going through life, just it's so hectic and crazy that, that, Lord, we almost don't even have the capacity for compassion. But, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts. God, even this week, I pray, God, that you would, you would do a work in our hearts where we just begin to, to, to notice that, God, compassion is stirring once again inside of us. God, help us to notice our neighbors. God, help us to see what's, what's going on. And God, I pray that in that, as we have compassion, that God, we would just be engaged. God, if nothing less, help us just to see our, our neighbors as, God, as people. God, people who have a story. God, people who, God, there's, there's brokenness. And, and Lord, we all need someone who's going to love us and who's going to care for us and who's just going to be that person to, to brighten up our day. God, help us to have compassion for, for the people that you've placed around us. And Lord, I pray that Jesus, you would, you, would, you would fill us with your love. Jesus, you are love and you live inside of us. So God, I pray that your love would rise up within us. And, and God, even if we don't feel something, God, I pray that we would be a people, God, who just trust you enough to say, okay, I'm just gonna go and engage my neighbors because that's what, Lord, you're asking me to do. And Father, I pray that, that Lord, as we do this, that Lord, uh, you would let your light shine so brightly here, God, in our community. God, I pray that our neighborhoods would be uh, neighborhoods where, that are just different. God, I pray that, that they'd be neighborhoods where the love is flowing, so to speak. God, where there's just compassion, where neighbors care for one another's, n- another. God, I pray that we would be, uh, na- that our neighborhoods would be neighborhoods that just experience joy, that experience peace. All because we, your church, have made the decision to go, okay, Jesus is inside of us. He's going to give me the strength to love my neighbors, and I'm just going to go and do it. God, work through that, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.